As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everybody and welcome back to another episode of wings for breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic presented by BetMGM. i'm max boltman and with me as always prashant Iyer. red wings are uh, right in the middle right now of a series against the tampa bay lightning best team in the nhl uh they actually played a pretty close game tuesday night 4-3 it goes to ot they lose on a uh, break or a two-on-one goal uh, by blake coleman that uh, kind of courtesy of a badly timed line change for the Red Wings there. But Prashant, what stood out to you last night uh, before we get into kind of the meat of the show today of that uh, Red Wings Lightning game on Tuesday night? I think the main thing that stands out is, you know, this the Lightning are a team that's absolutely owned the Red Wings for the better part of, you know, last several years. I think they've won 18 of 19 against the Wings coming into uh, last night's game. And, and I think you have to be encouraged that at times the Wings held their own and even more so at times they carried play. Um, I thought they were, you know, somewhat competent against a Tampa team and maybe having, you know, four days off uh, helped them be there. Yeah, obviously getting Dylan Larkin back was a huge thing, but, you know, for chunks of the game, uh, I thought the Red Wings were, sorry, I thought I heard a honk there from the goal horn. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought the Red Wings were actually able to stay with the Lightning for the most part. And that, that's that got to be really encouraging because the Lightning are just an absolute juggernaut. Yeah, they did stay with them, and I think a lot of that was driven by a very good second period in, in which the Red Wings controlled a lot of play. You know, I, I thought Philip Zadina once again was outstanding. Obviously, he assists on the opening goal of the game, but on the second goal, the Patrick Nemeth goal, he goes right to the net on the rush, no hesitation, gets in there for the screen, and ultimately that more than I think anything else, although it was a nice passing play from Nemesnikov to, was it Gagne to Nemeth? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Zadina's screen a crucial role on that goal, and so I I think can you know continuously since really since you did that uh, episode on Philip Zadina pretty recently he's been quite good. Yeah, I mean that that screen was a Thomas Holmstrom level screen. Like 
that was feet right on the edge of the blue paint, you know, butt right in the goaltender's face. You land on them, put the arms up, and basically turn back and look at the ref and see if they're calling you for a penalty. Like that was it was everything. That was a textbook Thomas Holmstrom screen, and because that's the only way you're going to score on a shot from that far out where from Nemeth was shooting from. I mean, you remove Philip Zadina, you have an inadequate screen. That puck is going to get stopped 99 percent of the time. So. You know, that screen was so good. <laughs> Vasilevsky, I think, after the puck is in the back of the net, uh, basically his head finishes underneath Philip Zadina's rear end. Just a really great job um, getting his feet planted in the right spot, setting the nice screen, and, and uh, you know, staying out of the way of the shot. This goes back to something that you talked about a while back as we were discussing Michael Rasmussen and Elmer Soderblom, which is you do not have to be six foot seven and a giant to have a really good net front presence. And it does not have to be just parking yourself there for an entire offensive zone possession. This was well-timed. This was off the rush. He's really only there for three, four seconds, um, but he's there on time. He's in the exact right place. Uh, and it gets the job done. And Philip Zadina, not small, but he's six foot even. He's not a big, big forward in the NHL by any means. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the two best screeners of all time, you're probably talking about Thomas Holmstrom, who was six foot, 198. And you're talking about Ryan Smith from Edmonton, who was six one, 191. Like, these were not big guys. It's not the guys that you're, you're you know, parking in front of the net. It's not a Boston Bruins power play with Zdeno Chara in front of the net. This was literally taking uh, a guy who's just so adept at being in the right spot, mirroring the goalie's movements, and then deflecting pucks. Now, in this case, Zadina obviously doesn't deflect the puck, but knowing exactly where to put your skates, how close to be to the goalie, having that feel um, to, to know that you can be right up in there and not allow them to see around you, I think that's the key to being an effective screener. It's not just being six foot six with a you know massive... Uh, build it's it's guys that know and understand uh, how to mirror the goalies movements and where the shot's going to be going and you know recognizing how to take away those lanes and, and and I think that was a great example of a great screen right there and and also another example of the ways that Zadina is rounding out his game that may not show up uh, in his personal score sheet you know but but all these little things that he does if he keeps doing all of them and then his shooting percentage kind of continues to, to regress the way that we have believed it can and the way it kind of started to the other night. I forget what series that was by now. Was it Nashville or who, who was that? Who was this to? Carolina? Yeah. Yeah, Carolina. Um, then all of a sudden you have a really complete player on your hands. It, it, it's almost ironic right now. Like the thing that is happening the least for Philip Zadina is the goal scoring, which is the thing that on draft night you would have said, this is the guarantee. Let's see how everything else kind of comes. Although I, I have long thought that his passing um, is a really underrated thing. And, and I know that Jeff Blaschel has talked about how he's long thought that Zadina was a more complete player than he got credit for. I just think you're seeing it so much this season in a way that, um, at least at the NHL level, it wasn't popping as much in past years. And so I, I think the more you see this stuff, the more confident ultimately you can be that, that, that Zadina is going to factor in really prominently um, to the future of this team. Yeah, I think that's the fun part about this team. I mean, obviously the Red Wings are are not a good hockey team. We we all know that. We've you know talked about it a million times at length. But when you start to isolate some of the different skills that a player can have uh, at the NHL level that allows them to be successful, and then you start paying attention to Philip Zadina, you start to see all the little things that he does that add up to being a successful hockey player. I mean, obviously we all talked about his shot. 
coming out of the draft, he said he was going to fill up, you know, other teams' nets, uh, you know, do everything there. But you're starting to see the passing, the awareness on offense, you know, the ability to skate with the puck on entries on the power play, his ability to be a puck hound defensively, and the number of takeaways he's able to generate, uh, you know, by chasing down these guys. I mean, he had a number of great takeaways uh, last night, being able to just come from behind and, and pick people's pockets and and go from there. And then you see another element of it with his ability to come in and, and take, you know, set a screen. And it's a heck of a screen that allows, you know, Patrick Nemeth to be able to blast a shot from 50 feet out past the, uh, you know, past Andre Vasilevsky, who's arguably the best goal in the NHL right now. So you're as you're watching all these different skills and, and thinking about what he's able to do, uh, it's really encouraging to see. I should point out, I, I don't think that his uh, underlying numbers were excellent last night. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you walk away and he's got a five-on-five five expected goals for a percentage of 41%, which was about where the team finished. I mean, Tampa made it look ugly on, on from that perspective with how much they dominated the third period and in the latter half of the first period. Um, but... Yeah, so it doesn't look pretty there, but I think when we're measuring um, him from some of the more advanced models, looking at goals above replacement um, on evolving hockey, he's you know one of the top three Red Wings in goals above replacement right now when you're looking at goals as the target variable. So whatever he's doing, it's resulting in goals happening you know more for his team than on the other team, even though he himself is not scoring them. Yeah, no, that, that, that's that's a good point, and, and and certainly he passes the the eye test right now as well, and and so that's kind of the other key to this is that, you know, when you see him, he he's lo- he's making a visible difference. You're not just kind of completely trusting the the run of play, although I think it's important to balance those things because there are people who you will watch and they'll, you know, your eyes might tell you they're they're really dominant and it comes back and really the you know they're getting uh, much more danger against than they are for, and so it's important to kind of look at that. Uh, both ways, but but I think you're still seeing clear progression here from Zadina, and uh, yeah, I, I I I'm just continue to be impressed by the way he's rounded out. I mean that, that that's the key here. I mean the other the other two guys who last night I thought it was interesting looking at the underlying numbers. I believe the two highest on the team for the Red Wings were a pair of guys who uh, are going to be talked about a lot in the next month, and that's Bobby Ryan and, and Luke Lindenning. I believe they're first and second on the Red Wings in expected goals four percentage, although I'm having a hard time pulling it up right now. <laughs> Technic- I mean, uh, technically, they're all right there. I mean, Glenn Denning ends up first and Bobby Ryan's fourth with Larkin fourth, and Brome okay. in between, but they're all separated by 4%. So relatively similar night for all four of them. So I, I just wonder, like, you know, it's it's one game and you're never going to react to a expected goals four percentage in one game for somebody. But I just think it's maybe a little bit of a um, proof positive coming for the deadline that those are two guys who can make... Uh, a positive impact against, you know, the league's best team. You know, Luke Lindenning's a guy who's going to be relied upon in that exact situation. Bobby Ryan's a guy who, you know, he's, you're, you're, you're getting him for his offense and for the depth scoring. But to see him be able to play a, a team like Tampa and, and also control kind of the um, run of play a little bit in, in the way that it happened for him last night, I, I think stands out as a real, you know, again, I'm not going to say it's going to make or break their case. These guys have much longer resumes for teams to base this off of, but maybe a little bit of proof of concept, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's what people perceive Luke Lindenning as. You know, people perceive him as this defensive-minded center that obviously, you know, we know about the face-offs. We know how, you know, good he's been this year in the face-off dot and, and the ability to match up against opposition's better players. You know, even though 
drives me insane to talk about it. You know, hockey coaches still love their checking lines or checking centers and being able to throw out, you know, that defensive minded center against the opposition's top line. And that's what you saw last night. I mean, Luke Glendening spent 70% of his minutes at five on five against the Braden point line and yeah. won the matchup. And, and that's not something we usually say. He doesn't usually win the matchup, but he actually wins the matchup. You know, when they're on the ice, they don't score. The wings outshoot the Tampa, uh, outshoot Tampa with the point line on the ice. I mean, that's not something that really happens that often. So, you know, for him to be able to go out and have a good game there, that is what I think you're trying to sell uh, opposing coaches is, look, he can go out there. He can match up against the best of the best. He can hold his own. He's a heck of a face-off, uh, you know, heck of a guy in the face-off circle. He's going to be able to provide some value and some 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 worth overall. So I think, you know, with his game in particular, I think you're pretty, uh, um, you know, you're trying to make that sell there. Yeah. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about one of the guys who was not uh, on the ice last night, and that's Evgeny Svechnikov. He gets scratched. Uh, this had been the way it was trending from practice, but, you know, we've seen instances in the past where um, the practice lines don't completely translate to the game. Now, the most recent example of that, the Franz Nielsen being on the top line thing that everyone lost their minds over, um, ended up being just a placeholder, and that was for an injured player. And so um, I do think this was never quite that because he was outside the lineup rather than it being... Um, you know, like Robbie Fabry was never skating as a scratch when that was happening, right? That was just him not skating that day. So I do think it was fair to read into this one more so than it was the one before. Um, but, you know, I, I asked Jeff Blaschel after the game about it, and he said that Larkin was going to be in the spot that they would have otherwise put Svechnikov on the power play. And without um, the power play, they thought, you know, Svechnikov maybe wasn't going to play as much. Um, and, and they also liked Brome over Svechnikov on what it, I guess it sounds like would have been the line he played on with Rasmussen and Bobby Ryan. Um, you know, you pointed out Brome's expected goals there. Blashell did say he thought this was Brome's best game in a long time. Um, but that was kind of the answer. It was just we liked Brome there better. So it sounds like that's who it came down to. I, I'm, I'm, my guess is reading between the lines on that, they don't really want to touch the Glendening Helm Ernie line, which has every time they've gone to it kind of been a checking line that they've liked. Um, I imagine Helm or Ernie are kind of the guys who the fan base would have preferred to see come out for Svechnikov to come in, but but it it very much sounds like the the debate here is between Brome and Svechnikov for that spot on the third line more so than uh, he, uh, Helm or Ernie or Svechnikov on the fourth line. Yeah, I mean you you know if you dissect the statement down, um, it doesn't make a ton of sense on the surface. I mean. Uh, but but there are some certain things to, to point out. Yes, Matisse Brome had a great game last night. Uh, really good at five on five. I thought he was good of a bit of a puck hound. Um, he's been the wings leader in takeaways on the season. He is a very good defensively responsible player. Um, I don't think the offensive upside is necessarily there when you're looking at a guy compared to Svechnikov, but he's a defensively responsible hockey player and, and Jeff Blaschel in his system likes defensively responsible hockey players. So you know, you you see the Brome edge there. I think the one for me that I'm really struggling with is has been Adam Ernie. And yes, he's come on of late. I mean, after scoring, he right, he scored in this game after scoring against uh, Nashville to break out of his 40 some game slump of, of no goals. I think it was actually 36 games. Uh, you know, he's he's starting to actually put some more points on the board. But to me, he's the guy that doesn't make a ton of sense to keep 
in the lineup over a guy like Evgeny Svechnikov, especially, you know, if you come back out and you just step out and you just look at Svechnikov and not necessarily the other guys, um, it kind of stinks, right? You're you're being told you've got to do good things when you're in the game. You've got to be able to contribute. You've got to be able to make an impact. And here you are after four games with four points and you're sitting on the outside of the lineup. And you, I mean, he's one of the few guys who's been able to find the, you know, find the score sheet consistently um, in three out of his four games, including two points in his first game. So it's tough. Like it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow there. And there are guys that just don't offer the same offensive upside. But again, we've seen this time after time with Jeff Blaschel. He is a defense first coach. And if he doesn't feel that you can give him the defensive responsibilities that he's demanding, he is going to 10 out of 10 pick Adam Ernie and Matthias Brome over Evgeny Sveshkov. And I think that's just what it comes down to. One thing I will say, though, on that note, and I agree with you about that reasoning, um, and, and maybe these two things aren't as maybe synonymous as I'm making them out to be in my head, but I also asked Blaschel about Sveshnikov two days ago when it first seemed like this might be possible. And he went out of his way to say, you know, Sveshnikov's doing a good job. He tries hard every shift. He works hard every shift. You know, you just got to keep doing a solid job. Like, it didn't sound like there was any dissatisfaction with Sveshnikov's compete or anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and again, that's the public statement. But as the player, right, what, yeah, is, right. what is the action, right? You know, actions speak louder than words. And so you can tell me I'm doing a good job. But if at the end of the day, me doing a good job results in me sitting out of the game, that's that's not necessarily. Oh, that I agree. Really, it's confusing. It, right. it does seem like, you know, maybe it is like, a, you know, as, as you ask him about him, he, he wants to make sure, make clear that this isn't a punishment or anything like that. And I, I could buy that. I mean, there's people who try really hard and, and just aren't. Uh, aren't cutting it. But, but again, like for a team that lacks offense in the way that this team does, it just is mystifying that you would so quickly punt on a guy who's given you a point per game. I know they're not all the prettiest points in the world, but a couple of them were really nice. I mean, the, the, the rebound goal that he gets for his first, you know, that's not really a highlight real goal, but it was almost a breakaway goal two seconds before that. His power play goal was very nice. His his setups on a couple of these assists, one of them I think is a secondary, but one of them on his assist to Nielsen was quite nice. I mean, it's, it's I think you can make a case that, you know, two of those four points are really his creation and it, and at least one more of them was very nearly a breakaway goal. I mean, it's, it's to me, it's not like he hasn't been dangerous for a team that really needs the danger, but, but I do think ultimately, I guess that that brings us back to what you were talking about a minute ago, and that's that the Red Wings have proven over and over again this year that they're going to be a defense-first team. They think defense is their path. Uh, as much as I hate this stat, Svechnikov is still a minus two despite being a four points in four games player, and I wonder if that's not maybe the most telling one here as to explaining the situation. You know, I, I think... The other frustrating aspect I think a lot of fans will pick up on here is at times it it feels like it's a subjective assessment, right? Yeah. It's not something objectively that everyone's seeing here. You know, we talk about the 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 four uh, points for Svechnikov and you're going, okay, I have objective data here saying that he has done a good job of providing that offense. But then it comes back to that subjective assessment of, you know, this is a better defensive player and I like this game a little bit more and I think this guy fits this line a little bit better. I think that's the part that people get frustrated with because you can't tangibly see it. You can't tangibly hang on to it 
agree with it, verify it yourself. It's literally an assessment that's being made by a player and sometimes or by, by Jeff Blaschel. And sometimes that assessment runs contradictory to some of the objective stats that you see, right? And I think that's where it's been even more frustrating because you know Adam Ernie has the same minus two as, as Evgeny Sveshnikov. Granted, he's done it in more games. He's got the same minus two. Darren Helm's a minus four. Darren Helm has fewer points in 18 games than Evgeny Sveshnikov does in four. But Darren Helm's not sitting out of the lineup. And so that's where it's like, there's that frustrating aspect where you are being told that I want this guy in the lineup because I like this fit and look better, but objectively it doesn't really line up that way from the numbers that the public can see. And that's where I think you get a lot of the frustration and chaos that happens on social media. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, now I will say I, I did ask about, I think I asked about Helm and Nielsen a while back. And and one of the things Jeff Blaschel said was he, he pointed to the, the penalty kill advantage that Helm brings and... Um, I, I would imagine there's some of that still. I also just think that they like the the look of that Helm, Ernie Glendening line. And I have to say, I get that. I, I also see what he sees on the forecheck of the way that that line complements each other. I do. Um, but what I would also say is, I don't know that, you know, like, especially with the way that you've talked about their forecheck in the past, like, yes, if, if Svechnikov is kind of your F1 or F2, maybe that's not... Uh, he's maybe not as good a retriever as Darren Helm would be, but especially as that third man in, you know, I got a lot more confidence that if Luke Glendening or Adam Ernie goes in, uh, and, and wins me a battle down low or gets me, retrieves a puck down low in the ozone and you got him turning around and, and sending a pass to Evgeny Svechnikov, I've got a lot more confidence that that puck is going in the net or at least to a dangerous area. Um, than I do with Darren Helm. And it, it's not to shit on Darren Helm, who I, I do think uh, can bring some things on the right day, but it's just, you know, at some point, um, I, I think it's a fair, you know, w- with what Svechnikov's done, I think it's fair to say he can also elevate that duo of Glendening and Ernie maybe in a different way, but I don't think it's necessarily um, in, a, uh, you know, in a worse compliment it's just a different look that that line would have and maybe they just like this look better and I, I guess it does suit what we've talked about it with their defensive identity but am i off base on that i mean even if even if helm is a better literal retriever all three of those guys are kind of puck retrievers give me a guy who if the retriever gets the puck and sends it to the slot can actually finish this play right and and again that's where i think we just come down to and that's why there's not going to be a reconciliation i think with the fan base with jeff Blaschel's statement is because it is his subjective assessment of what he sees in a player that fits his system that he wants to implement. And whether or not any objective data that we're looking at fits that, that is his subjective assessment, and that's what he's trusting. Like, you know, I saw someone say this. I can't remember where I saw it, so I apologize for not being able to to quote you directly, but it was the problem that people have is it's just a gut feeling. Right there, there's it, it just comes across as this is my gut feeling and there's no, you know, real tangible objectivity that that's held on to here. And, and the fact that it doesn't favor getting more offense on a team that struggled to score goals mightily this year. Yet, yes, the power play is clicking now five games in a row with a goal, but you're still struggling to score goals. You're still not able to, to win this game. There was no point in time where I thought Detroit was going to be able to beat Tampa because. I knew if Tampa tied that hockey game, the game was going to be over. Like Tampa was going to be able to score in that in that fashion. And so 
that's I think ultimately you know the frustrating part. I I like you, Max. I give me the guy in the slot that can finish. Give me the guy that can you know put some points up, and I'll give me the little bit of that trade off here. I mean, we talk about the the Ernie Glendening and Helm line uh, that Blasio likes, but objectively when we look at them, you know they they've been on the ice for more goals against, and they uh, scored. Yeah. Uh, at five on five, right? I mean, that objectively, they haven't been a stopper. You know, objectively, they're actually one of the worst defensive lines on the wings by, a, you know, goals against metric. Obviously, goals aren't the, the best, you know, stat to use there. But simply put, if we're going to use kind of the more simplified statistics here. I mean, that's the eye. Right. That would be the more eye test right. stat. Yeah. Right. And they've been on the ice for more goals against. But that's yeah. where I think it comes down to subjectively, this is what Jeff Blaschel wants, and this is what he sees, and that's why he's going to go with it. But it's frustrating because it just doesn't match what the rest of us um, looking at objective stats, you know, the rest of the fan base looking at those objective numbers, or even to their eyes, aren't seeing the same thing. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, I'd like to know now what happens when Tyler Bertuzzi gets back. Because, obviously, we don't know when that's going to be. He's still not skating, so it's not going to be anytime soon. But someone else is coming out when Tyler Bertuzzi gets back. And, you know, I guess we're almost getting to a place where the Red Wings have some depth here if this is something that um, is going to get to this point. But, you know, I would throw Bertuzzi back with... Larkin and Mantha, I think with the way that all three of them, and and Bertuzzi is kind of excluded from this because he's been out so long, but with the way that the three of them have been, or at least the the top two, Larkin and Mantha, have been since being separated from Bertuzzi, I just think that's a trio that you might have to just stick together, and maybe that line sticks together indefinitely at this point, you know, through the the rebuild, and, and they just age together, and and whatever they, they're your top line for a while, and then eventually they they fade into becoming your second line um, when Lucas Raymond, Philip Zadina, and whoever your next you know top center is come through. Maybe that's just how it's going to need to be. You know, you look at the way the rest of the lineup falls in. Nemesnikov has, I think, been better at center, and that's where I thought he'd be coming into the year. Um, and I'm not taking a victory lap on that. It's just I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think you leave Zadina with him. Now the question is, do you leave Gagne? Because that trio looks good. Is it is it Zadina, Gagne, or Nemesnikov, Gagne, and then you could play Rasmussen with Nemesnikov and Fabry. Uh, sorry, Rasmussen with Ryan and Fabry. That's not a bad third line there, and it's not a bad duo for Rasmussen to be with in terms of you know complementing his skill set, and and you put him with a couple of um, 
more offensive players who, if he clogs the lanes on defense and, and can force some turnovers down low, maybe they can finish some plays. Does Brome come out at that point or does Brome swap in for Ernie? Does Brome swap in for Helm? I mean, Bertuzzi, speaking of the penalty kill, I thought was their best penalty killer before he went down to my eye. I don't know what the numbers say about that, but I thought he was in lanes. He was disrupting things. He was uh, creating a little bit of uh, of havoc up top, which is important. So I want to know what happens when Bertuzzi comes back in. If they like this Helm Glendening Ernie line so much, now Bro all of a sudden Brome's out. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's the end of the world if Brome is out, but it's it's just going to be interesting to see how this goes. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think it's going to come down to whether Adam Ernie or Matthias Brome comes out. But you know, the 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 thing that's attached to that is how does Svechnikov get back in, and and that's where I just don't know. Because how does he get back in? Well, well, the unless, answer might be the trade deadline. Right. So that that's really the only way that I see him coming back in. And shoot, we didn't even talk about this. Maybe Michael Rasmussen comes out. I mean, there's no yeah. guarantee that Rasmussen stays in, right? He's been up and down. And so, you know, you're, and again, I think you're going to have more frustration if Rasmussen's the guy coming out with Ernie and Brome in, uh, or even if you're not able to get Sveshnikov back in at that time, I think that's still going to be very, very frustrating. And then, you know, I think the other thing to, to throw in here, you're saying, you talked about the trade deadline. There's no guarantee the trade deadline rolls in the way that Wings fans think they're going to roll because there was a report that came out today talking about a lot of teams in playoff position have sort of been told, don't spend money. We're not making money. And so how many deals are actually going to happen here? I mean, we're already starting to run up on time where the North Division needs to be making deals right. given the need to quarantine uh, to go up there to get any sort of value out of them in the regular season. Do we have a very lackluster trade deadline because owners of teams simply don't want to take on extra salary? I don't know. No, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've written about this a couple of times now, and I don't know if people are, are brushing me off or they don't want to believe it or what, but I have gotten the same impression. I mean, it, it, it's one thing that, that I, that I have gotten the sense of is that the, the way that the, uh, the decision process would go at a normal deadline. You know, you have incentive as a playoff team to buy for multiple reasons. And I think the one everyone thinks of is because they're fans win the Stanley cup. They want their team to buy because they want their team to win the Stanley cup. But the secondary kind of motive and, and almost fallback motive is that if you don't win the Stanley cup, but you've traded for a player and he helps you win one more round than you were going to win. Now, all of a sudden, you get two, maybe three, maybe four more home playoff games than you were going to get before. And we've talked about the value of a draft pick on this show before, the dollar value of a draft pick. You can make that value back. So even if you don't win the banner and you lose this player for, for uh, in, in free agency and, and you've traded for him and you've given up a second round pick or a third round pick or whatever it may be, you can live with it because you've gotten that value back in gate revenue, in parking revenue, in concessions, in whatever, you know, in, in fan excitement and people who are putting down their season ticket deposits for next year, all this stuff. And you may still get some of that, you know, in terms of the next year stuff this year, but but the, the in-house stuff, you're not getting that. There's none of that fallback motivator that teams would have in a normal year. And I have gotten the impression that that's going to be a factor, if not in terms of the, uh, I guess, franticness of the deadline, at minimum in terms of the prices that a team's going to be willing to pay because the amount that they're going to get back by making any kind of playoff run is just less. Unless you are, you know, Tampa, unless you are Colorado, unless you are Toronto. Um, who, who am I missing here on teams that are Carolina, 
that have, you know, really clear paths to the Stanley Cup, uh, it's it's going to be harder to sell to a team that probably knows it's not going to win the Cup, but could have otherwise stood to go around further. And that's the impression that I've got as well. And I really believe that that's going to be a factor at this deadline. Yeah. And so if that's a factor, then you can't even bank on the trade deadline potentially opening up roster spots for him. So, you know, moral of the story is, I think the, you know, Svechnikov coming out may be an ominous sign for how he finds his way to get back in the lineup. Because if you're not clearing a player by, uh, you know, being able to use that at the trade deadline, if you're not able to really move a lot of guys, uh, you may find it difficult because as of now, he does seem to be a couple spots below on the pecking order um, and definitely seems to fall behind Rasmussen in the sense that Rasmussen's the center can give you a little bit of that extra dynamic and some of the size that Blash will like. So I don't know. This may be a tough time for for Sveshnikov to draw back in. And the frustrating part is, well, he did so well in his four games. Yeah. I'm interested to see, too. I I think they almost owe it to him at this point with with what he did when he came in to either give him a look or help him get somewhere else. But I don't know what really they can do in, in column two because they waived him. No one claimed him. No one took him for free. You're not going to probably be able to really trade him. Now, sometimes there are alternative considerations there, um, you know, like the contract limit and all that stuff that weighs in. But um, I don't know. I, it, it, it's been a really, really tough draw for Evgeny Svechnikov and my my sympathies, that's a weird word to use in this case, but are, are with him. Like, I feel really bad. I'd be really not pleased if I was in his situation. Yeah. And especially, you know, with the Red Wings needing to make a decision on him this offseason uh, as a restricted free agent, it, it, it would behoove them to get more looks at him unless they already have a pretty solid organizational understanding of what they're going to do with him. So I don't know. I don't know. At the end of the day, I think it's certainly frustrating. It doesn't seem to line up with what, you know, People are seeing what the objective data is telling you. But at the end of the day, it seems to be that he just doesn't fit in Jeff Blaschel's current system with the current crop of players and the style of play that he seems to want. Uh, It just doesn't seem to be conducive to Svechnikov being able to stick in the lineup. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll continue to monitor it. And uh, obviously the other thing here, and and usually we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about it because you can't predict it. There's not like whatever, but... You know, just because the Red Wings get healthy doesn't mean they're not going to have another injury the rest of the way. Like that, it's part of the game. It's probably going to happen, and so um, it's it's always possible that uh, that that's the way that this that this resolves for Svechnikov too. So, but moving on, um, we actually spent a lot more time on that than I expected us to. So we may not have quite as much time for this next uh, segment. But I wrote today kind of a prospect stock watch, and it was a, a two guys who I think uh, have kind of raised their stock, and two guys who have struggled this year. Um, and, and that was on the rising side, Albert Johansson and Donovan Sabrango. And on the falling side, uh, Cross Hannes, the second round pick from this year, and Philip Larson. Uh, anything about that stand out to you, or do you have anything or anyone you wanted to add to that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think those those are probably the exact picks that I would make. I think, uh, you know, in particular, starting with the, the guys who are falling, I think Cross Hannes and Philip Larson, those are two guys who have done themselves no favors this season. I think Philip Larson, again, you know, struggling to find a foothold now uh, for a second consecutive year. I mean, I think last year or entering last season, you know, people had really high hopes for him in Grand Rapids, thinking that he would be able to kind of take over the net, ultimately ended up in the ECHL for Toledo. 
uh, you know, this season went over to the Osvenski and then went over to Denmark. He's got an 880, he's got an 888 save percentage in Denmark right now. Like, you know, that that's not good. That's bad in the NHL. That's that's bad everywhere. Um, really bad. Now he is 22. You know, you cannot give up on a goaltender this early. I don't think the Red Wings should give up on a goaltender this early, but it doesn't look good for long-term development, at least if you're trying to be a betting person. You know, even when we talk about guys who took a while to hit the NHL, you know, Jordan Bennington doesn't really hit the NHL until, you know, 2018, 2019, when he leads St. Louis to a cup. At that point, he's 25. He was in the AHL for the three years prior and, uh, you know, was able to stick in there with no major issues. So it, it is a little concerning that you're having Larson not being able to do much more in Denmark. Yeah, and I have no explanation for this one. I mean, it, it's just been a, a tough go. He was very good for the three seasons directly following the Red Wings drafting him. Very good in the Swedish J20 League. Very good in the USHL. Outstanding as a freshman. Uh, in college at Denver, they turned him pro. I thought two years in Grand Rapids and then kind of entering this 2021-22 season, he's challenging for the backup job. Uh, clearly that's been derailed. And the only thing I got is he had a broken finger this year that maybe stopped him from getting into a groove. I don't think that explains 888. Yeah. I mean, that, that, no, that doesn't explain 888 and 888. I don't know if it's a mental thing because the guy was such a monster in the NCAA. I mean, obviously the NCAA is a, a far inferior league to most of these professional leagues in Europe, but Still, I don't I don't know what it is at this point, but hopefully he can find his way back. The other guy on the downside uh, is Cross Hannes, and, and this is much less of a stock down, but I thought it was relevant and I thought it needed to be brought up, which is he's had a really tough time transitioning into the USHL. He's coming from the WHL, typically thought of as a better league, actually, than the USHL. Most of the Canadian major junior leagues, all of the Canadian major junior leagues are thought of as better leagues. Um, so when his production dropped the way it has in the USHL, it raised my eyebrows. I think it caught the attention of maybe a lot of our listeners too. Um, so I, I reached out to Chris Michael, who's the coach and GM there in Lincoln, and certainly he's aware of, of all of this as well. Um, the one kind of takeaway I had from this is that it sounds like one of the things that they're looking for him to step up in is kind of the intensity level of the USHL. And maybe that's a stylistic difference that while, yes, the WHL might turn out more prospects and all that stuff, maybe there's a style of play difference here that isn't, you you know, what, what Hannes as a kind of a more offensive-minded prospect is used to. And, and certainly when they made this pick, we knew this was a uh, high-risk, high-reward pick. And, and right now you're seeing kind of the risk side of that. Um, so uh, that's something that stood out to me. And then the other point he made is that this has been a tough situation for, for cross because it's, these are his first 16 games that he's played since the pandemic. 16 is not a minuscule sample. It's also not a huge sample. And so I think it's fair that, you know, 20, 25 games is still in your adjustment period to a new league and a new style of play. Um, and, and ultimately he did say he thinks Hannes has been good to coach, uh, and, and he had some some kind words about him, thought he could have a few more points if teammates had been kind of anticipating his passes and more ready to make something of them. Um, so I, he, he was clear. He doesn't think people should be hitting the panic button on Cross Hannes, and that's not what I intended to do by putting him in that stock down category. But I just thought it was worth diving into 
uh, something that there's really no way around it looking at the numbers in, in that transition has not gone the way you're hoping it to for for one of the guys you just took in the second round. Yeah, and I, obviously it, it's it been a tough season for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, trying to be able to sort through all of this pandemic stuff. Obviously moving leagues is a huge issue. Um, and so that can be such a big challenge. But I think the the frustrating part with Hannes is, you know, he was a bit of a swing pick, but he was a swing pick on skill. And we're talking about a guy who was stepping down a league basically a little bit from the WHL over to, um, you know, the, the USHL here, you would conceivably think that it is a step down and that he should be able to be a uh, kind of a prominent scoring player for these team for this team. In reality, it, it has not panned out that way. Um, you know, Max, to your point, uh, he hasn't been helped by his team. I mean, his Lincoln team is the second worst team in the, in the USHL. I think they're 10 and 22 or something like that. Just a God awful team thus far and they're getting absolutely rocked in their division i mean he has a five on five goals for percentage of 30 percent and that's actually in line with the team average if that gives you any indication on how bad the team is the thing that's really sticking out to me though is is in regards to adjusting to the intensity i don't know if it's lazy penalties what it is the guy's taking 77 penalty minutes in 16 games including his last game he took 34 penalty minutes and I'm not sure what is going on in terms of misconducts, plays like that. I haven't been able to watch his games, you know, in you know, visually to see. But yeah, he got it, a couple of misconducts, I think, in his last game. It, I think he it got just very from undisciplined. His last game. Yeah, it's just yeah. very undisciplined hockey. And get it. It's frustrating. You're making that change, but very undisciplined hockey, not really, you know, finding his game. And as a result, the guy has two points at even strength. Uh, you know, in 16 games and is very far off. I don't think it's a Philip Zadina situation where, you know, when Zadina talked about playing in the AHL and the style being so different, he kind of struggled because the players didn't think the same as him and maybe weren't where he wanted them to be. And as a result, his point totals don't look there. I don't really think that's been the case. I think, I think there is something to this, but it's hard to say exactly what it is. How many penalty minutes you say he has on the year? 77. Okay, so 34 of those were in his last game. He got two separate unsportsmanlike conduct 10-minute penalties on top of, and, and then a third one follows, I think, must be when you get two, which also carries an ejection. So, and that both of those uh, unsportsmanlike conducts came at the exact same timestamp of a different penalty, either a roughing or a slashing. A um, little bit of insight there into that stat. I don't know that it makes you feel better, but a little bit of insight. I mean, it doesn't it. because in the game yeah. before he had 14 penalty minutes and yeah. that was just the day prior against the same hockey team. And so it's like, what are we doing here? And then he has another game where he has 15 penalty minutes. Yeah. And so it's like, no. these are misconducts that he's just taking. That's three misconducts, four misconducts in, in 16 games. Like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so I'm not, I'm not really sure what's happening here. No, and, and none of this that we're saying is, is to to write off Cross Hannah, say he can't bounce back from this. It's, it is a 16-game sample. This is a 19-year-old kid. Um, I do buy a little bit of the coach's theory about the, the transition to the style of play being different because if you're a skill guy who's used to being able to just focus on skill, 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 and, and all of a sudden guys are defending you in a way maybe they haven't before, um, that can pose some challenges in your adaptation. But... Uh, you know, I think it's only fair if, if we cover some of these risers and we, we got to keep expectations in check for everybody and 
you know, I, I just thought it was worth, you know, diving into the context here. So I, I wouldn't write Cross Hannis off by any means. I, I, I think, you know, th- they took the bet on skill and you got to give skill time, but uh, it hasn't been the start that they would have wanted. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. But at least on the flip side, you have a lot of guys really exceeding expectations this season. And I think, you know, Albert Johansson's the guy who's who's certainly done that again. I mean, you know, Max, you talked about last year leading up to the draft, um, or really after the season got shut down, you're like, man, Johansson was just finding his groove and he was just starting to put points on the board. I really wanted to see what he would have done when he finished it out. Sure enough, guys doing the same thing, 11 points in his last 13 games. You know, your insight on him today was fantastic. I don't know if you want to share a little bit of that out of your story. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to a conversation that I had uh, with Sean Horkoff, the Red Wings Director of Player Development, uh, a, a few weeks ago now. It might be almost a month ago now. As I started my real series of deep dives into uh, Johansson, and so a, a lot of that was about, you know, what the Red Wings are seeing from him. They, they thought he was just starting to scratch the surface. And one month later, as Johansson, uh, offensively, one month later, as Johansson has uh, just put up gobs of points in that time since that interview, um, that looks awfully prophetic. You know, they, they want him to add a shot from the point. They like his compete. They want him to add strength. One of the things I thought was interesting, though, was when I dove into looking at, um, you know, some of the past defensemen of this age in the SHL who have produced like this. Um, he's not in this tier yet, but I, what I found was, you know, he, he would need four points in his final five games and he's had six in his last six. So right now that's not likely, but it's not out of the question for him to reach the 0.5 points per game mark as, a, as an under 20. Uh, he's still considered under 20 because that's how old he was when the season started. He didn't turn 20 until January as an under 20 defenseman in the SHL. Uh, nine guys have done that before. Mort Sider's doing it right now. He's going to do it for the full season. He's at 0.7 points per game. He's right now would be the best ever, um, but he's jostling with Rangers prospect Nils Lundqvist, who I think was a 2019 first rounder, 2019, yeah. 2018, 2019. I think 19. Uh, first rounder. He had, he had the best ever last year. Um, and then the the three three guys who I kind of spotlighted are, who have also done it and, and been a, and been in that uh, 0.5 or better territory. Thomas Janssen, Frederick Olison, and Callie Johansson, uh, who all had at least five seasons with 40 points or more in the NHL. So between Sider, Lundqvist, uh, Callie Johansson, Frederick Olison, and Thomas Janssen, those are, that's the company you very much want to be in. There was also a few guys who uh, did it who made the NHL and weren't, you know, weren't stars. Thomas Erickson, Tim Erickson, E-R-I-X-O-N. Uh, and then Albert's father, Roger Johansson, did it. Um, all three of those guys played in the NHL. Only one guy who made it to that 0.5 points per game as a U20 player in the SHL, U20 defenseman in the SHL, um, never made the NHL, and that was Hakan Nordin. So I, I found that interesting. Um, I don't know that Johansson's going to get to that 0.5 points per game marker, but I don't think it's really such a hard cutoff where if you get there, you got a chance to be good, and if you're at... 0.47 or something, you're you're nothing. I, I just think he's inching toward that company. And if he closes the same way he closed in his last five games last year, um, he would join that company. Yeah. And I think the nice thing when about Johansson is when you look at him, obviously scoring at prospect levels is, is generally indicative of a player that may translate well to the NHL. And that's why you hear people talk about prospect points so much is because well, number one, that's a lot of the data that we really have for some of these leagues. We don't have much more than that to know, you know, some of the advanced stats. And number two, it's kind of been shown that 
particularly with defensemen, defensemen that score in other leagues tend to translate better to the NHL. So I think that's encouraging. But the extra piece is with the SHL, we do have more data. We do have five-on-five data. We can look at their Corsi 4 percentage and kind of make an assessment there. The nice thing about him is he's a he's a plus player. He's a 52.6 5-on-5 Corsi 4 percentage. And that's 6.5% better than when he's off the ice for his team. And so that's really, really encouraging to see a guy that can not only score himself, but drive play as well. And score a lot at even strength. I mean, he's right there with Moritz Sider in terms of, you know, one of the best scoring seasons for a defenseman in the SHL. And he's not far off from a being able to drive play at five on five. So two really, really exciting guys um, on the back end that may be able to join the Red Wings, you know, as soon as next year. Two guys that wouldn't be too bad paired together either, stylistically. Yeah, it'd be a lot of fun to watch those two. I think those would be... That would be a heck of a pairing to to watch uh, play together because I think uh, you'd have two guys who could, it almost would remind me of like a Konstantinov and Lidstrom pairing that the Wings used to sometimes trot out in like 1995 just because they could. Two guys just very smart, very heady. You've got Sider with the nasty streak. You've got Johansson who can skate well and has a great vision and great passer. Uh, obviously not saying they're going to approach those heights, but it's I was going to say, similar. I can't believe you just invoked yeah. Lidstrom. <laughs> I mean, not only Lidstrom, I invoked Konstantinov as right. well. And that's, that's huge praise right there, but it's a, it's a similar style for a pairing like that. So that'd be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, they would be. And, and I think the Red Wings defense core, uh, the, the depth of it is something that impresses me. One of the other prospects I dove into, into the, in this stock watch was Donovan Sabrango, who he's not doing anything crazy production wise, but he's kind of holding his own in the AHL and, and I think has made an impression on the coaching staff there. So that's why he was in that list. He almost made, uh, Team Canada's World Junior team. I thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, but between those two guys, you got Emil Vero, who I think is having a nice season in Finland, Antti Tuomisto, who, you know, a, a good, not great, but still good, uh, season as a freshman at the university of Denver, half a point per game as a freshman. He's an old freshman and that's where the reservation would come in. He's, he's 20, but, um, but still I, I, I think solid. And, and the question there is going to be, does the skating come around? I wrote about that when I did the defense pipeline story, there is some, some hope that as he puts on more muscle, it just gets easier to keep the the mechanics of the skating stride together because he's bearing a lot more load than a smaller player is. And so you can hope that when the, uh, the muscles get bigger, when, when he gets, when everything, you know, when he gets stronger, more balanced, all this stuff, um, that it gets easier to hold that stride together carrying all that weight if that comes around to is really interesting wallander is a guy who could be interesting the more he can round out his game i like the depth of this defensive pipeline quite a bit they're still missing that other i think top echelon guy to complement cider um and and you know certainly i would put heronic not in that tier i, I would put him in a good tier for i again i'd call him a future second pair guy for the red wings um, I know you, you know, Stetcher, I, I think is young enough who could stick around and be that. So you've got this good depth. You know, I think if, if I'm Steve Eiserman, give me one more top flight defenseman, whether it be in this draft, whether it be in the next draft, whatever. Uh, and, and I feel pretty good about where that's headed. Yeah, I think you absolutely have to love your decor. And I think you have to love your forwards right now, especially with what Lucas Raymond has done, what Jonathan Bergeron has done. I think you've got a lot of reason for excitement. 
Yeah, I, I, that's an area too. I think they need more. I think they need another number one level center, uh, as good or better, ideally better, obviously, than Larkin. Um, I think Larkin is a number one center, but I think on a championship team, you need two of those. And usually you want one of them to be an elite number one center. Now, let me just go to the grocery store and find an elite number one center really quick. I mean, that that's much easier said than done. I don't even think you can necessarily guarantee yourself one with the first overall pick in some years. Um, in, in fact, in at least half the years, probably you can't guarantee yourself an elite number one center. That's why they're elite. Um, but they got to find one of those. They got to find another number one D yes, they do have to find the goalie, although they don't, don't think they have to do that at the top of the draft. Um, and I think they can still use more help on the wings too, but especially with the way Zadina is developing with what Raymond looks like he's going to be. And with, with what you already have in Mantha and Bertuzzi, although again, one of those guys could be moved, um, Things are coming together nicely. You, you mentioned Bergeron; he's having a great year. Uh, you know, I, I keep I have kept waiting for uh, a reason to to think that he's you know get, this is going to fall off for him, and it's just not going to happen at this point. Like he's he's not a point per game anymore, but he's still at like point nine. It's really really impressive. Yeah, I mean Bergeron's impressive, and then I think just to round out all the positional groups, I think I'd toss in Keith Petruzzelli. I mean. You know, he made the the Hobie Baker 50-player finalist. He's not going to win it. Cole Caulfield's going to win it. But, you know, he's on the 50-player finalist. He's on the Mike Richter list for, you know, best goaltender. I think as a junior, uh, you know, he had a really nice season and and played very, very well. And so hopefully he's now the guy that takes the next step after coming out of the NCAA. Obviously, you know, there's no guarantees when we just talked about Philip Larson. And in fact, Larson's numbers at Denver are better than, than Petruzzelli's numbers this year. But all that being said, you're kind of hoping maybe he's the guy that can that can take that next step for you. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, so this dovetails well into a mailbag question. So I'd like to go there if you're ready. Do you have anything else on this before we move into the mailbag? No, let's go there. Okay, so Ben Walling says, is it time to start talking about Johansson and Berggren in the same breath as Raymond and Sider? He feels like they're viewed as a tier below his prospects, but they are tearing it up. Um, I say no. Where are you at on this? I say no because of pedigree. And I think that matters when you're talking about draft prospects. And what I mean by pedigree is uh, you have to continually, you can't throw out old information when you get new information. What you need to do is actually adapt your kind of overall assessment of the player, uh, you know, with the new information incorporated, maybe slightly weighted a little bit more so than past years. But I don't think, that should ever get tossed out the window. And so when you're talking about a guy like, you know, Lucas Raymond, <clears throat> who had a sensational U18 career, uh, sensational player, you know, his world juniors, obviously everyone talks about, you know, incredible skill set that doesn't get outweighed by Jonathan Bergeron, who's not necessarily developed at the same rate, coming on a little bit later, doing it at, at an older age. Uh, you know, Bergen's a great player, but he's still going to be in a tier below for me. And same thing more at Sider. I mean, being able to play 
you know, professionally in the DEL, being the rookie of the year as, you know, in your pre-draft year is not a common thing. Uh, we haven't really seen a whole lot of that. And so that pedigree has to carry forward. And then obviously Cider has now basically dominated all of the best leagues aside from the KHL that are not the NHL, you know, had a great season in, in, with the DEL, even though he didn't play a lot of minutes. He came over to Grand Rapids, had a great season in Grand Rapids, and is now putting up historic numbers in the SHL where he's arguably the MVP of that league. So to me, I can't put Johansson in that tier because he doesn't have the history of being like that. So that's why I think they're going to always be a, a notch below for me at, until we get more and more evidence suggesting that they do belong in the same bucket. Yeah, to me, Cider and Raymond are top 15 prospects, period. Like outside the NHL, like they're 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 so high on that list that it's at least one tier. It might be two tiers behind for Johansson and Bergen, who I think are very good prospects, and I think they have a chance to be second line, second pair type players. But I look at Raymond and Sider, and I think you know top line, top pair looks almost like what I expect. You know, I'm not saying it's a guarantee; it's never a guarantee with prospects. But I think that gap alone explains things. Two guys who have a chance to be second line, second pair, and two guys who I expect to be first line, first pair. So that's a huge difference. I mean, Cider, when you just compare him, you know, forward to forward and defenseman to defenseman, Cider's game is, again, at least as good, if not better, uh, production-wise. Although I, I certainly, I think, you know, Johansson has some tools in his game that give him more offensive upside than Cider. But he's, they're the same draft class, right? And Cider has scored more in the same league. Um, now, per 60, that's pretty close. So that that's fair. But then the reason that he's Sider's playing so much more is because he does have this more rounded out game. He is a stopper defensively. You play him in every single situation, uh, and and he has a dimension to his game with his physicality that Johansson doesn't. So again, he's he's just a, he's above. I mean, it's at least one tier above for me. Uh, I don't think it's like you know. I'm, again, I like Johansson. I put him in this risers tier. I think he's a future NHL player. Um, I, but I think the question is is how good. And with Sider, there's just very few questions at this point. Raymond to Berggren. Yes. Berggren is outscoring Raymond in the same league right now. He's also two years older and Raymond's numbers this year so far are better than what Berggren even was doing in his draft plus two. And this is Raymond's draft plus one. Raymond also a more complete player. I'm going to like him more uh, on on the full ice uh, from, from the full ice perspective than I think I ultimately will Jonathan Berggren. And I don't think that Raymond's going to score less than Jonathan Berggren. I think he'll score ultimately more. I think he's more versatile. He's got a better shot. He can do more. So no, I don't think it's time to put him in the same breath, but that's really more speaks more to how I, I really think that Raymond and Sider are two of hockey's top prospects, period, than that Johansson and Bergen aren't great prospects. I mean, Johansson and Bergen are, are very good prospects and they've done a lot this year, each of them to raise their, raise their kind of level for me. Um, Johansson, I think I was expecting to do this a little bit. I mean, I, I picked him as my breakout prospect of the year. Bergen, I was not, but I'm impressed by both of them. So it's, uh, I, I just think it's, it's a, it's a difference of scale there. Raymond and, and Cider are top echelon and Johansson and Bergen, you're looking for them to become something you're not supposed to really be able to find in the second round. Yeah, completely agree with that. All right. Uh, moving to the next one. I think this is an interesting one from Peter Kletcha. He says, not so much a question, but something I'm surprised you guys haven't really discussed on the podcast unless I missed it. So he said, it seems like everyone's biggest beef with Blaschel is that he insists on playing veterans over more deserving young players. 
But Svechnikov, Rasmussen, and Brome seem to have all moved ahead of Nielsen and Philpel on the depth chart. That's kind of a big development, isn't it? Especially if you think that uh, prospects winning jobs over veterans is either an indication or cause of rebuild success. Where do you land on uh, this? I guess it's more of a, a topic than a question from Peter. Yeah, I mean, it, he's absolutely right. And it's worth pointing out because, again, when you have people railing about, you know, Sveshnikov's ice time or Rasmussen getting sent down, I think it's noteworthy to say that, hey, look who else is on the taxi squad, right? Uh, and, and and you see Valtteri Filippo and you see Franz Nielsen there. You know, they've both been waived and, and they've gone through something that a lot of people didn't think would happen. Um, it's hard to say if this is entirely Blaschel's decision versus, uh, you know, there being some cap component to it, given the cap accrual rate for Nielsen's contract and Fopolo's contract is going to far outweigh what you'd get from the other guys. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely encouraging to see that. Um, but you still are having some other instances where, again, you're so far from optimal state. Let's put it that way. I think you're making progress, but you're far from optimal state. Well, and this has kind of been a, a response that I've had for people, you know, especially as the Svechnikov uh, dialogue has played out is, is people have said, why play veterans like Filippola and Nielsen over Svechnikov? Well, they're not. They're not playing any of those. Three. They were on a line as extras the other day. But, um, you know, ultimately, I, I think that, uh, yes, the Filippola Nielsen thing is kind of proof that, you know, this, this is not just a... Uh, we we're not going to play the young players kind of thing from from the coaching staff. It, it's a you know these are the the group we like. It just goes back to last night's answer. Like they, you know Nielsen and you know, ultimately Ernie's not a young player, but he's not an old player either. They're they're playing him over where they could be playing Nielsen, for example, right? Brome um, is not an old player, but he's twenty six. I mean they're they're playing him over um, you know Nielsen and and Philpola. It, it's it just goes to show you that this is less about age and more about the players they like. And, and I think that's kind of it. I mean, Sveshnikov is older than Zadina and Zadina's in the lineup over him, right? Uh, Michael Rasmussen is older than Sveshnikov and Rasmussen's in the lineup over him. I don't think this is about, uh, like, you know, some kind of, you know, we don't like kids. We like old guys. We like proven it's, it's the players, it's the players that they're choosing. And I think, Considering Svechnikov's pedigree and, and considering what he showed in the four games that he was in, it's still okay to be bothered that he's not in the lineup. I just don't think it's about old guys versus kids. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, it's hard to say who's making what decisions. We don't have all that information, but at the end of the day, it, there's more progress here than there was last year, and I think that's what you're sort of looking to see. And that, I think, also answers this question from Matthew Korczak. Do you think Eiserman has a bias in favor of his guys, Philip Labrome? Uh, seems, you know, over Sveshnikov, Rasmussen, and Chalowski were Holland picks. Again, Philpola is scratched. Brome has, I think, been scratched. This is the players that, that the, the coaching staff, and again, the coaching staff talks to the front office. Like, I don't think these moves are going to be shocking to Steve Eisman by any means. It's it's about the players. I don't think it's an inherent bias. Um, Lars asks, how does your top five for the upcoming draft look? We, You and I uh, got into this a little bit uh, over text the other day. Yeah. Uh, I think my top five, again, William Eklund, I think to me is the best player in the draft. He's highly skilled. He can play center, um, you know, very talented forward. He's doing things in the SHL that a lot of guys don't get, you know, the opportunity to. Now, that being said, his game is not as well-rounded as, 
the guys last year that were in the SHL. He is not on the level of Lucas Raymond. He's not on the level of Alexander Holtz. Um, you know, if I was picking him in the crop of the 2020 draft, I would be taking him after Anton Lundell to kind of put some perspective there. But that being said, I do think he is kind of the biggest upside player in this draft from a, a skill standpoint, from a IQ standpoint, from an ability to ultimately give the wings a chance at a number one center. Uh, for me, he's kind of number one there. Uh, I think really two through five, uh, somewhat interchangeable. You know, Matty Beneers belongs in this list. I think Beneers has been an outstanding player. I think uh, for me, my top defenseman uh, is is probably Brent Clark, although I think you make a strong case for Luke Hughes as well. I think Luke Hughes is a heck of a defenseman. And I, I think probably your third best defenseman is, is probably Owen Power, um, in that group, uh, if not, you know, Carson Lambos, although he hasn't had, you know, as strong of a season, um, Simon Edmondson, a lot of people really like, I don't like him as much. I think he's a little too much of a high risk, high reward kind of player, but you know, there, there's a handful of guys. And then if you want to get into some of the other forwards, I mean, Fabian Lysel is another guy who probably deserves, you know, merit in the top five. So, uh, a lot of different guys, I really think you could have in your top five and, and have it be legitimate. I agree. I, I do not have a hard and fast, like, this is my number one. This is my number two. You know, I, I, I've probably watched Michigan more than I've watched. I mean, I've definitely watched Michigan more than I've watched any of these other teams. I did go see Luke a couple weeks ago. Um, I, I buy him as a top five pick. You know, I, I think uh, the skating is just an attribute that it gives you so much to build on there. Um, I'm not as worried if his defensive game didn't didn't really make me feel real uh you know, fired up per se, but, but, you know, the, the skating is such a weapon. He is a Hughes and his skating looks like a Hughes. Um, I'm not saying he's going to be Quinn. Um, but you know, it, when you have that baseline tool of the skating and he is one of the very youngest guys in this class, there's a lot to work with there. And so I, I think he's a, to me, he's a top five guy. I would put power as my number one. I mean, but you know, I, I, I realize that there's, people who might disagree with that. I mean, I, I think to me, what I see in power is a guy who number one is already producing in college hockey at a pretty competitive level. I mean, he's at, I think he's at like 0.66 points per game at Michigan, uh, almost full season by now. I think they've actually completed their regular season by now. Um, that to me is, is very good production for, for a college freshman defenseman. Um, and, and he does it at a size of six, five or six, six and a mobility that tells me the more he adds, the more dimensions that he adds. And I do believe he will, um, that this is a guy who has that kind of top line potential, top pairing potential, I should say. Um, but I think Matt Beneers has been the best player this season of this group of Michigan guys. For me, I think he's been awesome. He's a high motor player and you're just wondering how many goals, how many assists when he gets to the NHL. But I have zero doubt that this guy is an all day matchup center who I think is pretty good in transition from what I've seen. Uh, he has, I think he had a four point game last weekend or two weeks ago or something like that. Like he, he had a great offensive game there. I think he might even have a hat trick at one point this year. So he's, he's scored. I mean, he has, I mean, Kent Johnson has scored a little bit more than him. Um, but I've liked Beneers' game more. There's no doubt that Johnson is the skill guy. Power is the uh, motor and the center here. And, you know, you you could probably find someone who who would say maybe Johnson can come back to being a center. But those two have been on a line all year, and Beneers has been the center. Um, so I'm certainly 
I'm stone cold confident in his ability to to stay a center at the next level. I will second Eklund with you in there. I think it's really hard to deny the production. He's producing at about the same rate Lucas Raymond has this year, and Eklund is a draft class behind, although he's a late birthday, so he's not that much younger. Um, but I think it's still half a year younger. So, um, and, and producing at about the same rate as Raymond does uh, a draft class behind. I think that's very impressive. What does that bring me to? Does that bring me to four? Yeah. Uh, I think you've got Power, you've got Beneers, you've got Eklund, you've got Luke Hughes. So you're going to say a goalie for five, aren't you? No, I'm not going to say it. I wouldn't do that to you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I think there's a lot of ways you could go. You mentioned Edvinson. I think that's very possible. Uh, I'm curious about Genther. Uh, Chaz Lucius, since coming back, has scored some goals for the NTDP. Brant Clark, you know, I want to see Dylan Genther and Brant Clark as the CHL seasons really get more underway. I, I just haven't seen enough of them to give you a real good opinion um, in the same way that, that I can on some of these guys that have more of a track record. So I give you there my four, and then I think I'm a little more fuzzy after that. So I need Prashant to, uh, to run his model here and, and tell me what to think. <laughs> I will eventually get to that at some point. All right. That sounds good. All right. We got time for one or two more. Uh, the Pete Rorig asks, what is the four-year flat cap projection due to the rebuild timeline? If anything, does this benefit the Red Wings or just hurt everybody? I think it potentially benefits the Wings. I mean, you look at how much cap flexibility they have set up, uh, you know, for the next few years. I mean, you're talking about they have $36 million to the cap next year, $14 million the cap in 22-23. I mean, yes, they're going to add some some deals. You know, they'll, they'll likely get something done with Tyler Bertuzzi, with Philip Aronik. You know, maybe they bring back Christian Juice. Uh, you've got to re-sign Michael Rasmussen, potentially Ernie, potentially Brome. Uh, and you've obviously got a lot of UFA spots, but you're going to talk about a team that probably has $20 million in cap space uh, for next year. And if there are other teams that continue to be cap-strapped, then the Wings can continue to position themselves as a team capable of taking, uh, you know, other teams' salary dumps in exchange for uh, picks like they did with Mark Stahl and, you know, as they can do with potentially other contracts down the road. So if anything, I think it helps the Wings because, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think they're going to be a consistent playoff contender within four years for this to be detrimental. Yeah, I would agree. I think the end of that four-year period is when you're hoping that that window is starting to open and you're you're a playoff team and maybe you're not, you know, one of the five best teams in the league yet or anything, but you're hoping that, you know, Raymond, Sider, and, and your next two picks are kind of entering their prime by then and and can, uh, well, maybe not your two years from now pick, but um, you know what I mean? It, it's, uh, you're, you're hoping that's when you're opening the, the window up a little bit. So, uh, I don't think it hurts them a ton. I'm skeptical how much it helps them. I just think the the as the shock of the situation wears off, the more time teams have had to plan. I just think that the the time to strike uh, on some of this cap stuff would have been last off season. This was the the one that GMs were most caught off guard by. They probably had the least time to figure out what they wanted to do with. Um, I don't think it's you know out of the question that they could find a way to kind of use their cap space to. Um, help solve somebody else's problem for an asset. But I just think that the, the, the shock of it last summer was the time when it was going to be most uh, crisis zone for teams. And it'll change for certain teams. Some, some teams, Vancouver uh, is going to have to sign Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes this summer. Um, they're a team that you know could certainly uh, be up against the cap and, and at least face some tough decisions in order to make that work. 
Um, but I do think they have a little bit of space too, if I'm remembering that right. So I mean, I, not a ton, <laughs> not a ton. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, there's going to be teams that have that situation nonetheless. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's going to happen, but I, I think the time to strike was probably last year. Yeah. I mean, it, certainly you can argue that the time to strike was last year, but I still think you're giving GMs too much credit. There are far too many That's GMs fair. out here that have just an absolute dumpster fire of a, of a salary cap structure. I mean, you know, Pittsburgh is going to be in a scenario here where they're going to have to resign a couple of restricted free agents this year. But even the year after, I mean, you're talking about a new contract for, for Brian Rust, a uh, potentially new contract for Evgeny Malkin, depending on what you're doing, a new contract for Chris Letang, depending on what you're doing. And they've got Marcus Pedersen signed for $4 million for another four years. Right. Matheson, $4.8 million for five years. You know, John Marino, they just got his deal done. Uh, Brandon Tanev, three and a half million for four years. I mean, there's there's a number of teams out here that are just gonna run into major cap issues. Uh, so I don't I don't think Detroit's window is necessarily closed. Vancouver is definitely the one that I'm picking on, though. I mean, they are absolutely not prepared for this. Uh, you know, between Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, you know, given that Brayden Holtby is not shown to be kind of the goalie you thought he was. Um, you know, they're going to have to replace basically their entire decor. Uh, you know, Adam Gaudet's due for another deal. Uh, there, there's a, there's a lot of issues in Vancouver. And so they're, they're another team you could absolutely pick on here. Jim Benning's press conference the other day didn't spark, uh, confidence in you and in, in his approach. No, no, absolutely not. Not in any capacity whatsoever. Fair enough. Uh, Eric B asks, uh, assuming the Red Wings will draft top five, which uh, which is Detroit's greatest prospect position of need? Is it a puck moving number one defenseman, top line center, or Prashant's way too early goalie pick? Yeah, definitely not a goalie. Um, although if you're evaluating the pool, that is the position they need the most. You're just not going to take it uh, in the top five. Right. Uh, for me, I think you need a number one center here more than a number one D. Um, because if I have to bet, I really like Moritz Sider. I really do. I think he's going to be a number one defenseman. And I think the guys coming behind him are potentially talented enough to where you could get by without necessarily adding another defenseman to that group. If you're able to keep Troy Stetcher, yeah, Moritz Sider, you know, Albert Johansson comes through. You find another guy, maybe Emil Vero, you know, pans out. Maybe Donovan Sobrango pans out. You know, we, you know, Wallander, whether it's Tuomisto. I think there are enough guys where one of them maybe pans out the way you want it. So for me, I think number one center is by far the most uh, or the biggest need because as good as Dylan Larkin is, you need another guy that's at least as good as Dylan Larkin for this team to really take it to the next level. I do lean toward the theory that center is the most important position uh, on a hockey team. And you, if you have two elite centers, you can overcome a lot. Um, however, one thing I'll say about this draft is if Matty Beneers is or Matthew Beneers is the uh, best center in the draft is he actually going to be better than dylan larkin i mean i'm not so sure that that's the you know i I think he's a great player i think he can be a number one center but is he better than dylan larkin yeah and so that's a that's a great point because you know answering the question here i think that's what the wing's greatest need is the wing should not draft on on positional need you have to draft who you think is the best player available because of the probability of these players not working out. And so 
yes, Matty Beniers may be the best center and center may be the, you know, position I need the most. But if Matty Beniers is not the best player on my board, I don't take Matty Beniers. I take the guy who's the best player on my board because I think so often, um, you know, we get accustomed to uh, the NFL NHL draft. projection, right? Well, you know, just the projection right. of what the guy is going to be. And they'll throw out, he's a top line forward. But you forget that there's a whole range of outcomes possible for this player. Um, you know, there's a great article on EP Ringside by Mitch Brown talking about William Eklund. And in that, he kind of quotes, uh, you know, a, a quote from Corey Jez, who is, a, you know, a director of analytics for a, a football or for a soccer team. And what the quote is effectively, if you were to give a scout, you know, five cups with cup being great player, you know, good player, average player, below average, bad player, and then give them, you know, 50 marbles to fill up the cups. How would you distribute your marbles in terms of what you think is the most likely outcome? And that helps you remember that there's a range of outcomes compatible with a player and and that's why, you know, if you have to take the player who you think has the most marbles in the in the in the better best amount of buckets, because if you don't, then you're really swinging for the fences on a lower number of marbles. And that just isn't going to pan out uh, more often than not. For context in this conversation. And again, I really like Matthew Beniers. I think he's a he's a fine pick in the top five. And, and I think he's you can justify that pick as high as number one overall legitimately. Um, but Dylan Larkin's freshman year at Michigan, 47 points in 35 games. Now he was, that came after his draft. So he's a little bit uh, older than Beniers at that time, but only by, you know, seven, eight months or so. Uh, Beniers is a freshman, 23 and 22. So the offense is lower there for Beniers. And and I think you can argue that the, the motor that Beniers has, well, I think Larkin shares uh, kind of that trait as well. Maybe Beniers makes up for that and can literally become one of the best defensive centers in the NHL. If he does, no problem then. Then, then, you're, then you're just building it that way. Um, but it puts a lot more emphasis if the offense doesn't come. Because I think you can argue that what the Red Wings really need out of a number one center is an elite offensive number one center. And while you certainly want the two-way center... Um, I think, you know, the playmaking matters too. Although if you're putting Matt Beneers next to Lucas Raymond and Philip Zadina, uh, maybe it's not so hard to become an elite offensive player. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the point the point stands, right? You're basically looking for the, the flashier, the Datsuk to the Zetterberg, you know, yeah. uh, kind, kind of uh, regard. Like, obviously, both were outstanding players, but Datsuk's the guy putting up 97 points. Yeah, Zetterberg scored 40 goals in the season, but he did it playing, you know, with Datsuk a lot. And so... Uh, that that's kind of what you're looking for. I think Larkin is the heck of a defensive center with a good offensive upside, but you need another guy at least as good, if not slightly better than him. Maybe Matty Beniers is. I actually think Matty Beniers is Dylan Larkin light um, in the same regard, and so maybe, maybe he could that be. is the case. Uh, but that's why I like William Eklund a little bit more. I think that offensive upside is just a, a titch better. But don't forget Eklund's defensive game. He's a heck of a puck retriever, just like Lucas Raymond really gets after it so he would be a heck of a player to have as well yeah and, and, and again i i would have no criticism if the red wings took matthew benier's number one overall i think it's just a little more pressure than for for him to truly be that kind of second larkin that you want um you know and, and it just maybe i don't know um so i i i uh i guess to recap benier's good but in terms of this draft if you want to pick for need i think this is your time to get your defenseman and for me that would probably come down to one of two players power or hughes power if you want to just 
get another player who who can someday kind of fit that more outsider role of all situations. They're not identical players. Um, I, I actually think Power maybe might score a little bit more than than Cider will, um, and I don't. I'm not sure that he's going to defend as well as Cider will. But uh, he is kind of that big, um, all situations mobile guy or if you want to put your chips in another way and go for the thing you don't have then you go for that luke hughes type who can maybe give you that dynamism um on the on the offensive blue line so those would kind of be the four that's why those are my four right eklund Beniers, hughes and power are, are the four that i would be deciding between with some more guys who i haven't seen enough of potentially able to come into the picture but um, i think i would try to grab my defenseman this year there's some stud centers next year's draft, but uh, obviously you got to be able to pick in the top three to get them. So um, that's the the trade off there. So yeah. Anyways, <laughs> be happy if you get any of those guys. <laughs> yeah, be happy that you're not picking sixth. That's right. Although you might still. I mean, where, where you, are they right now? You may actually still pick six. So if, if those uh, lottery changes that we talked about the other day come into effect. Uh, Detroit and Buffalo right now would be tied for the worst record. And Buffalo, I think I saw today, is going to be without Jack Eichel for a while. Um, they might be cruising for the best odds and a guaranteed top three pick here. That would put Detroit, uh, if if things hold, uh, in line for the number four pick at worst. So uh, consistent again. That's right. All right. We've uh, rambled long enough. Um, thanks for listening. As always, the Red Wings play the Lightning again. Uh, on Thursday, and if you want to bet that game, you can always go to betmgm.com. Uh, they will have everything you need to, to do that and if, just add a little uh, little bit of extra flavor to your viewing experience. But we'll be back at you early next week, and we'll talk to you then.